The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I'm going to talk this morning about the judgment of the gods. This morning's message is kind of playing off of last week where we talked about the Tower of Babel. We have a lot of new folks that have been watching us, and I'm getting questions. And hopefully, you know, we talked about the Divine Council last week and a little bit the week before, but we haven't really gone in depth on it. And I realize there's new folks here, so I want to try to lay out an understanding of what is the Divine Council. What are we talking about? Give you an overview that will hopefully help you understand at least where we're at. And I think Psalm 82 does a a good job of doing that. So let's look at this psalm together. Psalm 82, verse 1 says, A psalm of Asaph. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now, the predominant view on this psalm is that it's talking about Yahweh judging Israel's leaders. Now, you know I'm not going to take the predominant view, right? Okay. (laughs) There's good reason for that, though. In my opinion, that view is way off. And again, I just think that has to do with bad translations. You know, when you have a bad translation, you know, it can get very confusing. I believe that I can prove this is not talking about Israel's leaders. The first thing I want you to understand here, again, that faulty view comes from a bad translation. If you're reading something and you think they translated it right and you get confused by that, the New American Standard here really obscures the meaning of this verse. And I don't know why they did this, but... They translate God, it says, God has taken his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Well, the word God here and the word rulers both come from the Hebrew word Elohim. So why you take one of them and translate it Elohim and take the other one and translate it rulers only has to do with your opinion, your prejudice, your bias. And people, all translators have bias and you pick that up in the translation. Look, uh, David (coughs) read Young's. They do a good job on this. Uh, God has stood in the company of God, in the midst of God, doth judge. Now, the first thing you notice, you say, well, Young's got God in there three times. The New American Standard's got it one. ESV's got it two. What is it? What's the difference? Well, in the Hebrew, Elohim is in this verse twice. Young adds an additional God where it says in the company of God. And that's really from the Hebrew word Adah. And it means a stated assemblage, specifically a concourse, or generally a family. The ESV translates this way. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Alright, here the translators render Adah as divine council. And Young states it as the company of God. The term Adah is normally translated congregation. So Elohim has taken his place in the congregation of the Elohim. The term divine counsel is used by Hebrew scholars to refer to the heavenly hosts, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. New American says he judges in the midst of the rulers. ESV says in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. I can't understand, like I said, why they take Elohim and translate it one time as God, one time as rulers, other than they're trying to push a view that they have. All right? It just, uh, it really doesn't make sense. Well, let me just say a word here. 
about the ESV translation. In my opinion, this is one of the best, not, I'm not saying the best, one of the best translations available at this time. And here's why I think that. The starting point for the ESV translation is the 1971 edition of the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. And each word of the text was checked against the, and based upon the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. The publisher, who is Crossway, states this. They say, in exceptional difficult cases, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Syriac Peshitta, the Latin Vulgate, and other sources were consulted to shed possible light on the text, or if necessary, to support a divergence from the Masoretic text. All right, so they, they're pulling in from all sources. And within the last hundred years or so, we've gained a lot from what we found at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have more knowledge than we've had. <clears throat> so basically, they're just using all resources available to try to get the best possible translation that they can. The ESV is what's called a formal equivalent translation. That means a word-for-word -word translation. They attempt to translate the Bible. They attempt, I said, because... It's, sometimes it's hard to go from Hebrew or from Greek into English, but they, as possible, they're trying to translate every word they can by keeping the sentence structure and the idioms, in pos idioms intact, if possible. All right? But now, like I said, it's, it's not a perfect translation. None of them really are. And that's why the more you use, the, the better off I think you'll be. You find some good ones and compare them with one another. The only problem I've really come across with the ESV is when I was teaching through 1 John. This verse here, 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, he cannot keep on sinning. Now, look at how the Christian Standard Bible translates that. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because the seed remains in him, he's not able to sin. Now, hopefully you see the difference there. ESV says he, you can't. He doesn't make a practice of sinning, and this CSV says he doesn't sin. He cannot keep on sinning, and he's not able to sin. Now, that is, that is really an accurate translation. He is saying, if you are born of God, you do not sin because you cannot sin. Now, if that's accurate translation, how does that make you feel? Well, don't go, don't go off the rails yet. Okay, there's an explanation here. I believe that John here is talking about a very specific sin. Okay? And that's why this is an accurate translation, because the sin is specific. The sin he's talking about is rejecting Christ. Now, on our website, when we went through 1 John, I spent a whole Sunday just on this verse, so if you want more in-depth on it, you can go there and look it up. But I think what he's dealing with here, that, that Christians, we know Christians do sin, Okay? So what is he trying to say here? Well, I said this is very specific. I think he's trying to say we can, and there's like, I don't know, 10, 12 different translation, interpretations of this, how you should look at it. All right. I think it's saying we cannot sin the way unbelievers do. We cannot commit the sin that leads to death, which is rejecting Christ. So basically he's saying, as you're a believer, this is a sin that's not going to happen. Basically, you can't lose your salvation. You can't reject Christ. You're not going to be lost. So, all right, just to throw that in there for the ESV. Good translation. And it does a very good job on the divine counsel in translating these things. All right, let's go back to Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine counsel. So verse 1 of Psalm 82 is telling us that Yahweh is in this divine council. The divine council is made up of Yahweh and many other gods. 
Now, you're, I know this stuns a lot of people like, well, who are these other gods? Where'd they come from? Where's, what's... All right, let me try to explain this, all right? First of all, you got Yahweh. And by Yahweh, I mean the divine trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Yahweh has existed from all eternity. Go back as far in your mind as you can go. He was there. There never was a time when he was not. Now, don't think about that too long because you'll hurt something, okay? He existed from all eternity. But at a point in time, Yahweh created other gods, lesser gods, to be part of his divine family, his divine council. Now, Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, is said to have created everything, including these other gods. Like if we go to Colossians 1.16, it says, speaking of Christ, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Yeshua designed all creation. Visible, that's earthly kingdoms, empires. Invisible, that's divine principalities and powers. And the words here, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, probably refer to spirit beings and not human government. In part, this refers to the hierarchy of spiritual beings. So these gods were created before Yahweh created the world. And we see that in Job 38, 4-7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? God here is talking to Job. Tell me, he says, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. That's sarcasm, people. <laughs> see, a lot of us in this church are biblical by being sarcastic. because. <laughs> <laughs> God is being sarcastic to Job. Surely you know. Who stretched the, t- the line upon it? What were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Morning stars here, sons of God, are names of divine beings who are members of the divine council. So before the creation of the earth, before the creation of man, Yahweh and the other created beings, divine beings, who make up the divine council, were there, and they were there at creation. They're observing this creation. People try to say the sons of God are human beings. Well, tell me how the human beings were there at the creation before it was even created. That just doesn't fit at all, okay? Hopefully you'll see this doesn't fit. Um, This council meets in the heavens, all right? People say, well, these are judges, and they're judging the leaders of Israel. No, that's not what it's talking about because the council is in heaven. Look at Psalm 89, 5-7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God created to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Awesome above all who are around him. Now here we see that this assembly of holy ones meets in the skies. Okay, Skies, here's the Hebrew word shahach, which means clouds of heaven. The council is meeting in the heavens. They're not meeting on earth where Jewish judges are. This is not an earthly human council. These are heavenly beings. Heavenly beings here is ben-el in the Hebrew, and it means sons of God. And then we have the council of the holy ones. The word council here is from the Hebrew sod, which means a session, that is a company of persons in close deliberation. By implication, it means intimacy, consultation, a secret assembly. 
the texts, these texts in Psalms clearly depict a heavenly council in the skies and not, as some scholars suggest, a council of earthly human judges. This is speaking of the divine council, which is made up of Yahweh, the sons of God, or as Daniel calls them, the watchers. Now, in the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, notice what Daniel has to say. He says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers. So the sentence that's being put on it is by the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men. I think we understand God setting over kingdoms the lowest of men. <laughs> the word watchers here is from the Hebrew er, and it means a watcher that is a divine guardian. Now, the non-canonical book of First Enoch has a lot to say about the watchers. In fact, the first 36 chapters of the first book of Enoch is called the book of the watchers. Okay? The book of the watchers. In Scripture, this word is only used by Daniel, but if you look at the other two times he uses it, you can see that he's talking about spiritual beings. Daniel 4.13 says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now, every time Daniel uses the term watchers, he tells us that they're holy ones. Here he also says they are from heaven. How many times have you read through Daniel never stopped to ask, who are these watchers and what are they doing? You know, sometimes we just read this and we just skim on and you never stop to think, who, who is that? We really need to, as we read, try to think. I know it could really slow down your Bible reading, but it's good to not just make, you know, make passage through the Scripture, but try to understand what it's saying. These watchers are part of Yahweh's divine counsel. In the Hebrew Bible, we see a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as a supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. Let me show you uh, the divine council in action. If we go to 1 Kings 22, 19. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. All right, so here we're in the throne room of God because he sees God on a throne and there's all these hosts of heaven, these divine beings standing around him. This is the divine council. Micaiah is Yahweh's in the throne room, and he's watching the interaction between Yahweh and the gods. And here we see mention of the hosts of heaven, the Savah Shamayim, which stands before Yahweh. The hosts of heaven is a reference to divine beings. These hosts of heaven are not just stars in the night sky. Look at Nehemiah 9.6. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you. So we have the host that God created. Then he says, the host of heaven worships you. People, only living creatures can worship Yahweh. So clearly these hosts of heaven referred to are created divine beings who reside in the heavens. Look at Psalm 29, 1 and 2. A Psalm of David, ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. So this is a call for the heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So here, 
these heavenly beings are being called, the heavenly beings here is Ben-El, sons of God. They're being called upon to worship Yahweh. Now Psalm 97 tells us that Yahweh is exalted above all gods. Psalm 97.9 For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Okay, how does this, how will you interpret this verse if there's no other gods? Yahweh, you're exalted above nothing. You're exalted above things that don't exist. Does that make any sense at all? But you'll hear so many people, no, there's no other gods, it's just Yahweh. Well, I think the text of the scripture tells us other words. Yahweh is far above things that don't exist. No, that's not what it's saying. He's far above all these other gods because he created these gods and he rules these gods. Psalm 135, 5 through 6. For I know that Yahweh is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever, your, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, the sea and all the depths. Who can you say that about? Whatever they, whatever they please, they just do. Yahweh can do that because he controls everything. He is the supreme ruler over all Elohim. Now, <clears throat> we see this demonstrated in, in Exodus chapter 12, and it's often too easy to miss, but Exodus 12, 12, God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt. It's talking about the Passover and then the Exodus. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now watch what he says, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So it's not just the Pharaoh, it's not just the children of Israel, or I mean just the children, the Egyptians there. He is going to pronounce judgment on the gods of Egypt. Now, in recounting the Exodus, Numbers 33 says this, 33 verse 4, While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them, on their gods also Yahweh executed judgments. So what we see going on in Egypt with the ten plagues, he's judging their gods. You know, Egypt had a god named Hecht. He was a frog god. God said, you like frogs? Here you go, have frogs. And the thing in that text that blows my mind every time I read it, Moses comes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I had enough. Get these, get these frogs out of here. When do you want me to remove them? What do he say? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I want to spend one more night with the frogs. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world? I said, get them out of here immediately. No, one more night with the frogs. Keep, save them till tomorrow. But all these different plagues that come against us, he is judging their gods. He's showing, you, you think these gods, you're worshiping these gods who can do these certain things? Let me tell you, this is Yahweh. He takes care of all this. He rules over all these gods. So that's, uh, that's really encouraging when you get into that text and see what's going on there. All right, let's go back to 1 Kings. All right. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. So these divine beings, these gods are standing in the throne and they're talking. One saying one thing, one saying another thing. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh saying, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I'll go up and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And if you know the story, you know, what does his prophets tell him? Go up, you'll be victorious. Don't worry about it. You'll win. Go. So he be, this is the plan. Why? Because they're going to kill him. Okay. And so he's a lying, a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And he said to him, 
You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And that's what they did. They said, hey, don't worry, you're going to win this battle. Not a, not a problem at all. And they just lied to him. And he went out, and he was killed. All right. So the vision seen by Micaiah shows that Yahweh is in complete control of the events. He only approves the course of action that suits his purpose. And in that case was to bring about the death of the evil king Ahab. Now, Daniel also shows us Yahweh's sovereignty over the hosts of heaven in 435. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So they're demonstrating that God is over these other gods, and he's ruler over them. And if you look at the other pantheons, you know, Ugarit or different neighboring, you know, Babylonian, you look at these pantheons and the gods are fighting each other. They want to be top dog in the, in the godhood, you know, in the pantheon there, and they're fighting and killing each other. That doesn't happen, okay, in the biblical text. All right, Yahweh is above them, he created them, he controls them. That is the end of it. There's no one, no one competing to be Yahweh. All right, so our text in Psalm 82, he is judging these gods. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, as I said earlier, the New American says he judges in the midst of the rulers. That, that's just a bad translation. And unfortunately, it does reflect the majority view on this psalm that it's talking about human judges. You know, people think well, that's God is judging these human judges. But John Calvin agreed with that. In his commentary on Psalm 82, he says, the name gods here it may be understood of human judges. That's, that's just terrible. Of course, you could give Calvin a break because he didn't have all we have today. They didn't know about Qumran. They didn't have all these different texts. They didn't have the Septuagint. So they're... <clears throat> but he was wrong, okay? Paul Leboutillier from Calvary Chapel, he's teaching on Psalm 82, and he says this. This is a psalm written to judges, people who judge. <laughs> I'm like, thanks for that clarification. I was kind of wondering who judges were, you know? But, but no, it, it's not written to judges. It's not written to people. I guess that's what he's doing. He's saying these judges are people. No, they're not. Now, the interesting thing here is he uses the ESV, and he says the word gods is Elohim, but that Elohim can be translated a myriad of ways. No, it really can't, okay? It can't be translated. I'm going to show you that in a minute because if understanding Elohim is really important here. He goes on to say, because this word can be translated as judge or judges, verse 1 could be read this way. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the judges, he holds judgment. So he said it could be translated the way the New American does, all right? We know there are no other gods. How do you know that? The Bible says there are. There's only one God. So he's referring to those who judge. See, if you have that position, I guess you've got to translate this some other way because there are no other gods, so... Can't be talking about gods, right? Can't be doing that. God and gods. All right, so Lebutier starts with a correct translation, the ESV here, and then he changes it so Elohim means judges, something it never means in Scripture. So let's talk about Elohim, because understanding this is critical to a correct interpretation of this text. Elohim is used 2,000 606 times in the New American Standard. I want you to look them all up. We don't have time to do that this afternoon. Okay, so you do this on your own. Look them all up. 
260, that's in the New American. And it's, Elohim is the plural of El. El refers to God. El literally means, it comes from a root word meaning might, strength, power. Translated God, El is used of God. Now Elohim is plural, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. Hebrew nouns that end in I am are plural, but in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. Okay? We know this from Hebrew grammar. Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is plural or singular? Grammar of the sentence. That's the only way you can tell, right? That's the same way with Elohim. And it's used in the very first verse of Genesis. Elohim is there. It's in Genesis 1.1. And we can tell by the verb bara identifies the subject of the verb as masculine singular. So it's singular, but it's a plural word referring to God. Now, you may think of Elohim as another name for Yahweh. A lot of people do. But Elohim is used in Scripture for many others besides Yahweh. Yahweh is called Elohim 2,000 times in the way it's used in Genesis 1.1. We know that Yahweh is Elohim, but He's not the only one. Okay, He's the only Yahweh. He's not the only Elohim. As we see in Psalm 82, members of Yahweh's divine council, they're called Elohim. Elohim is used of the gods of foreign nations. We see that in 1 Kings 11.33. Because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in the way, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David, his father, did. So here we have goddess and God. These are all Elohim. And the different gods are named here that they're called this. Elohim is also used in Scripture for demons. See that in Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Okay, so here again, God and gods is Elohim. So demons are also called God. Now, let me show you one that's probably the most interesting one in the text. And that's Samuel is called Elohim. Samuel. You know Samuel, right? He's called that by the witch of Endor. Okay? Now Saul had made it a law. You can't, you can't go to any of these mediums. You can't talk to them. They're, they're basically outlawed. They need to be done away. They need to be killed. But he's, he's just in a bad state. You know, he needs to talk to Samuel. Things aren't going right for him. i got to talk to Samuel. So he goes to the witch and said, connect me with Samuel. I want to talk to the dead, which is not allowed in Scripture. All right? But says, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? All right, she's trying to call up the dead here, trying to get hold of Samuel. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. God here is Elohim. So Samuel is called an Elohim. How is that? How is Samuel a God? Well, he's not. But here's what Samuel is. He's a spirit being because he's dead. Okay? Now, Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser says this about Elohim, and I think he's right on. He says, Elohim is a place of residence locator. When I was first studying out this idea of Elohim many years ago, I, I emailed Heiser and I said, look, I think you're wrong. I think there's a couple places where it's... And so we went back and forth a little bit and then I said, okay, I think you're right. After going through all this, I agree with you. But I, I went through basically every use of it in Scripture to, to check this out because I think this is really important to understand this. 
So when you hear Elohim, think of it that way. It's a place of residence locator. So the gods, the demons, the dead, they're all in the spirit realm. That's why he can be called Elohim. It's only used to those in the spirit world. Daniel 2, the Chaldeans say this. They said, the thing that the king has asked is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So the gods dwell in a different realm, he's saying. We, we, can't, we can't do that. Well, hopefully you can see that Elohim is a broad, has a broad range of uses, and it's not strictly referring to Yahweh. It's used of other gods, used of demons, used of the dead. Now, in attempting, you know, when I say that this is only used of these spirit beings, in attempting to find a human use to justify the idea of judges here, and basically to do away with the idea that there's other gods, Several people come to me with this verse in Exodus, and they say, look at this verse. He shall speak to you and to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be God to him. So you know what they say here? This is talking about Moses. Moses is called an Elohim. Is he? Is Moses called an Elohim in this text? He shall be as Elohim to you. You understand the difference there, right? Huh? If I said that's pointing out somebody, they're like a dog with a bone with that thing. Does that, am I saying they're a dog? No, I'm not at all. I'm using an analogy there, okay? They're like a dog with a bone. They're not a dog with a bone. They're like that in their tenacity or whatever, okay? Look at Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is a verse you should know. I will raise up for them a prophet. He's talking to Moses. God is. And he says, I'm going to raise up future generations, a prophet like you from among their brethren. He's talking about Yeshua here. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, people get this. This is important to understand. This is what a prophet is. God says, a prophet is someone I put my words in their mouth. So basically defined, a prophet is the mouth of God. He is someone who speaks for God. So let me just tell you this. There are no prophets today. You know, I, it's, it seems real big among the truther community that we have these prophets out there. And people go into these prophets and say, well, what's going to happen in the future politically? They're all tied to political stuff. And these prophets are giving all these, and I'm like, no. And they're, they're saying, oh, so-and-so said this. It doesn't matter what they said. They're not a prophet. There are no prophets today. Nobody speaks for God today. If you want to hear what God has to say, it's right here. It's written down. Okay? And if they're going according to this book, then guess what? you got the book. You don't need them. If they're going against the book, guess what? They're wrong. And they need to be dealt with because of that. All right. So a prophet is the mouth of God. Now let's go to Exodus 7.1. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron shall be your prophet. So Aaron was to speak for Moses. Because remember, Moses whining to God, I can't speak well. You know I'm not a good speaker. Okay, well, Aaron will speak for you. So Moses is like a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is like a prophet to Moses. Aaron was Moses' mouth. He spoke for Moses. A prophet, therefore, is someone who speaks for God. Aaron is like a prophet. Moses was like a God. If Moses was Elohim, then Aaron is a mouth. And that's not what it's saying. He's like Elohim. He's taking that role because he's speaking what God has told him to speak. And Aaron is giving that to Pharaoh. Now, another verse that is used to question that Elohim is used only to refer to those in the spirit world is Exodus 22. 
And I understand that these are the texts that gave me the most difficulty in trying to understand this. Uh, Exodus 22, 7 and 8 says, If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it's stolen from the man's house. Okay, you give your neighbor, hey, I got this you know, chest of gold here. I got to travel. Will you hang on to this gold for me? Sure, no problem. Okay. Well, you get back and guess what? The gold's gone. Oh, someone stole it. What? If the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, okay, what do you do then? Okay, the thief's not caught. Then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges, okay, to determine whether he laid his hands on the neighbor's property. The word here, judges, is Elohim, but the translators wrongly translate it as judges. Let me ask you something, people. How are human judges going to determine if the man took that money? How are they going to determine that? Unless they took it and they know, oh, he didn't do it because I did. You know, No. The English Standard Version translates it as God and not judges. There is no justification for translating Elohim as judges. None. Look at verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or a donkey or a sheep or clothing or any lost thing about which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judges. All right, both parties. Again, judges here is Elohim. He who the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. And you're reading this and it kind of makes sense, but then you think about it, how, how these judges, how these human judges are going to tell? The Faith Life Study Bible has this to say. I think it's pretty good. They say, the idea of God condemning the guilty party recalls other contexts where God's will was determined through casting lots. Though the method of discerning God's will is not outlined here, God often makes His will known during a decision-making process. Since the scenario here is very similar to the one that follows in verse 10, God's will may have been determined by an oath taken in the name of Yahweh on the presumption that God would reveal and condemn the one who took His name in vain. In other words, you're going before God and you're taking an oath saying, if I'm lying, may God kill me. So, okay, you don't want to do that, okay? The ESV translates Elohim as God here and not judges. And the verse makes it very clear, I think, that it's, it's the next verse makes it clear that it's, <clears throat> it's not human judges he's talking about. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, then an oath by Yahweh shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to the neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. All right, so there's this oath taken. For them to take an oath was to come before Yahweh and take that oath before him. So Elohim, therefore, is not used of humans unless they're dead and in the spirit world. It's a place of residence locator. All Elohim live in the spirit world. There's never a time in Scripture where a man is called Elohim. This is very important because it makes it clear that Psalm 82 is talking about gods, not human beings, that are going to be judged. We also have an example in early Judaism where people use Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. You know, when they dug up Qumran, I'm sure you're familiar with Qumran, some shepherd threw a rock and he heard a smash in a cave. And he goes, what the heck's that? They went inside and they found all these vessels full of scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
been interpreted. They're still working on interpretation of these scrolls. But one of the scrolls they found was called 11Q Melchizedek. And 11Q Melchizedek uses Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. It says this, It is the time of the year of Melchizedek and of his armies and the nation of the holy ones of God of the rule of judgment as it is written about him in the songs of David who said, God will stand in the assembly of the gods in the midst of the gods he judges. So he's quoting Psalm 82.1 here. And they use the term gods, not judges. Now this is talking about Christ, all right, who is the judge. In 11Q Melchizedek, the text goes on immediately after this, and it says this, to, the, to his aid shall come all the gods of justice. And so there's these gods coming to aid Melchizedek in the destruction of Belial and other spirits and to redeem the people. So this text makes it clear that Psalm 82 should be translated gods and not judges. Well, let's continue in Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. These gods are being judged because they're ruling the people unjustly. Look at Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrong. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. So again, the New American Standard is not a good translation. Just like Psalm 82, the gods are being judged for ruling wickedly. It's not judges who are being judged. Now, let's stop here and ask, how did these gods end up ruling people? I gave the answer last week. <laughs> I think that the watchers, these lesser gods, were jealous Okay, over man. Because God's got His divine family. They're in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is God's temple. It's God's dwelling place. Him and the gods are there. Well, God creates man. He brings him into His space. And, and the pseudepigrapha texts give us insight into this. They talk about this. These gods were jealous. They didn't like man. So they, we got to get him out of here. How do we do that? Well, let's get him to disobey God. So the serpent, and the serpent is not a snake. It's a divine being. It's one of the gods that are there. I mean, you can understand Eve listening to a god that's in the garden. You can't, you know, it's not talking to a snake on a tree, okay? That's just not, that's not what's going on, all right? And so they get them to sin, and so God kicks them out. They disobeyed him. They're put out of the garden. And so, yeah, that's good. Well, then Yahweh, in, in Genesis 3.15, tells of his plan to redeem them by the seed of the woman. And so the watchers go, okay, God's working out a plan to bring them back in here with us. We've got to stop this. So how do we stop it? Let's go down and have sex with women. We'll mix up the race so that he can't come through that race. All right? So and I think that's what we see in Genesis 6. And then beyond Genesis 6, the population just gets more and more wicked. They just don't listen to God. Man begins to worship these gods instead of the God, the Creator, Yahweh. And the rebellion of man culminates in the building of the ziggurat at Babel. We saw this last week. So Yahweh dispersed them from over the face of the, all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore the name is called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them 
over the face of all the earth. So everybody's got one language, it's one people, and they're building this tower. Basically, they want to make a name for themselves, the text says. They shouldn't be trying to do that. They should be making a name for God. And it's also a sense of rebellion like, hey, you're going to try to drown us again. We'll build a temple so high you can't get us. I mean, it's basically, at the Tower of Babel, they're declaring war with God. They refuse to follow Yahweh, so they try to just, you know, it's an attack on God is what it is, all right? All right, now this is, and, and under, help us to understand this text and what's going on here. If you go to Deuteronomy 32.8, he explains what's happening. He says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, now that's Genesis 11, that's the Tower of Babel. He divided them, they went different ways. He says, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. These are God. So he, God divided up all these people. You're, in this, you're over here in this area, and you're gonna, this God's over you. And you're going to be over here in this area, and this God's going to be over you. He divided them up. He put gods over them. In Genesis 10, we have the table of nations. That's the backdrop for this Deuteronomy 32.8. So Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of these nations. In fact, the variations of the Hebrew word parad, which means separate, are used in both texts. Genesis 10.32, Deuteronomy 32.8. So the idea of the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the sons of God. Now in support of the, this, we see in the ancient book of Jasser, and Jasser is mentioned a couple times in the Bible. It's mentioned in Joshua 10.13. It says, is it not written in the book of Jasser? It's mentioned in 2 Samuel 1.18. It is not written in the book of Jasser. Jasser is a pseudepigraphal work. It says this, and they built a tower in the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. So, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referring to Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation that happened at the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel's not listed in the 70 nations. Why? They don't exist. We don't even get to Israel until chapter 12, right? Tell her to be quiet. <laughs> the nation of Israel is not involved because they, they didn't exist at the time. That's why the nation of Israel was created because God said, you won't worship me. I'm sick of you. I'm done with you. Here, these gods will take care of you. I'm going to start all over. And in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham and he starts with a new people, all his own. And that's why all through the Tanakh you hear Yahweh the God of Israel. And he over and over says, I'm Israel's God. You got this other God. You have these other gods. See, at Babel, man's disobedience just got to the point where Yahweh's done with them, so he turns them over. They were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh's finished. Well, man just continues to re reject Yahweh and serve these other gods, so he says, I'm done. And I think this this rejection of man and the turning them over to other gods is what Paul talks about in Romans 1, 23 and 24. He says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their own bodies among themselves. This could be Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel where Yahweh says, that's enough, I'm done with you. Here, take these other gods. So what happens after God gives up the people and turns them over to the lesser gods? He creates Abraham. I mean, he calls Abraham. He starts, I'm creating a new nation. And that's it, all right? He's turned over the nations to the lesser god. And these lesser gods, in fact, work for him. They're all under his control. And he's someday going to call the nations back. And he tells Abraham that through you, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, all right? So the point of Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 is that sometime after God separated the people on earth at Babel and he established their location on the earth, he assigned each of them, each of the 70 nations to these 70 gods. Now, according to Deuteronomy 4, 19, this giving up of them was a punitive act. And we see this in Deuteronomy 4, 19. He says, beware, and he's talking to Israel here, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So Israel's serving these foreign gods. Things that Yahweh, your God, has allotted to all the people under the heaven. In other words, Israel, those are not your gods. I'm your God. Those are the nation's gods. Now we saw earlier that the hosts of heaven refer to sentient created beings who reside in the heavens. Notice here that the hosts of heaven have been allotted to the peoples. And the word allotted is the Hebrew halach, and it mean, literally means apportioned or assigned. Yahweh has assigned the hosts of heaven to the people of the earth, all non-Israelites. Israel's not to worship the watchers. Speaking of judgment that was to come upon the disobedient Israel, Moses said this. Now you got to remember, this is Deuteronomy 29. You got to remember this comes after Deuteronomy 28. Got that? That's a real important point there, okay? What is in Deuteronomy 28? Blessings and cursings. 15 verses of blessings. 45 verses of curses if you disobey. So then he says this in 29. All the nations will say, why has Yahweh done this to the land? Talking about the land of Israel. I thought they were, they were his people. He's their God. Why is this happening? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it's because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them. So they're serving these other gods. So Yahweh says, I'm going to judge you. Gods whom they had not known, whom they had not allotted to them. All right, these gods were not their gods. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And all you just go back one chapter and find the curses that he says he's going to bring. And he brought them. And one of those curses was, Women are going to eat their own children. And if you go to the, what happened in AD 70, you see that's exactly what was taking place there. So these gods that Israel's worshipped, they're not allotted to them, they're allotted to the nations. And these gods that were over the nations, they weren't ruling in truth and justice, so Yahweh judged them and claimed the nations, began to call the nations back to Himself. And in verse 6 He said, I said you are God, sons of the Most High. Here, gods is Elohim, okay? Speaking of these gods, your gods, but notice the very next verse. Nevertheless, you will die, you shall die like men and fall like any prince. If these Elohim were men, why would Yahweh say you're going to die like men? I know, how else do men die? But like men. 
But these weren't men. They're gods. And God is basically saying, I'm going to remove your immortality and you're going to die just like men. Jeremiah says something very similar. In Jeremiah 10, he says this, You shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from under the earth and from under the heavens. Very clear, Yahweh is the creator. They're not. They will perish, all right? So we see in Psalm 82 that Yahweh reviewed their performance as gods and judges of the Gentiles, and he condemns them for failing to judge justly. They're supposed to copy the rule of the Father. They're, they're supposed to rule in justice and order and law, and they're not. And then we get the last verse of our chapter, verse 8, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, who is the God here that it's talking to? Who is God in this verse? Who is to judge the nations, the disobedient gods? And Well, the Septuagint here, the word arise, is onistemi in the Greek. Septuagint is the Greek. It's onistemi. This is the term used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. Peter uses this word, onistemi, in Acts 2. He says, this Yeshua God raised up of him that we are all witnesses, okay? So he says, arise, O God. This is a reference to Yeshua, and the res- he is the resurrected one. He is the God who arises and judges the earth. Now, let me ask you this. When does this judgment of the gods take place? Paul connects... This to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Okay? He does that. Look at Ephesians 1. That he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead. So Christ is risen from the dead and seated at his right hand. There's the ascension in heavenly places. He's far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Christ has all things under his feet. They have submitted to him. This is Christ's dominion. This is his managerial ruling of all things. And this happened in the ascension. Now Paul also speaks of the pre- I mean Peter also speaks of the preeminence of Yeshua over all heavenly beings. In 1 Peter 3:22 he says, "Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God." There's the ascension. With angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. So Yeshua rose from the grave. He ascends into heaven. He judges these gods. Verse 8 tells us that when He judged these gods, He inherited the nations. Romans 15, Paul also connects the resurrection of Christ to the reclaiming of the nations when he says, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even He who arises to rule the Gentiles, in Him will the Gentiles hope. So the nations that Yahweh had given over to the gods are now being reclaimed by Yeshua starting at Pentecost. We looked at that last week. Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. Babel men are scattered. Pentecost, they're being brought to God in through one language. Now, hopefully, you're thinking, and you're thinking, well, if the gods were judged by Yeshua in the resurrection and ascension, Why did Paul write to the Ephesians 30 years after this resurrection and ascension and tell them that they were still in a spiritual battle? Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Just by reading this text, who would you say the battle is against? It's cosmic powers. It's spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. All right, this is not a battle with human beings. That's what he said. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Well, here's what's really important in this text. The word cosmic powers here is the Greek word kosmokarator. According to Strong's, it means a world ruler, an epithet of Satan. Thayer says it means Lord of the world, Prince of the age, the devil and his demons. This here, in verse 12, is the only time kosmokarator is used in the New Testament. But it is used in the pseudepigrapher literature, which the Bible writers were very familiar with, it's used in the Testament of Solomon, and it's used to refer to spiritual beings. In the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, yes, there's such a book, okay? Cosmocrator means Lord of the World, World Ruler, and it occurs in pagan literature as an epithet for the gods, the rulers, the heavenly body. So what, those who want to argue against this verse and say, well, this is not talking about spiritual battles, not talking about spiritual beings, you can't get over Cosmocrator. Only time used. But if we go to the pseudepigrapher literature, we find it's used of the gods. So if Paul's going to use literature that is in the pseudepigrapha to define the gods. I don't think he's going to use it in a different way here. So this is a strong evidence, I think, that he's talking here about gods. All right, that's who the battle is against. So Paul's telling the Ephesian believers around 60 AD that they're in a spiritual battle with divine beings. But he says the gods were judged by Yeshua in the resurrection and ascension. Why are believers still in a spiritual battle 30 years later? What was happening from Pentecost to Holocaust? It was a transition time, okay? The old was fading, the new was coming in, and this spiritual battle was happening in that time. Now, the victory of Christ over the gods was won at Calvary, but it was not consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Notice what Matthew writes in Matthew 24, 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. He's talking about the three and a half years of the great tribulation. He says, right afterwards, the sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Now watch what he says. The stars will fall from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We know this happened in AD 70. Is there any stars out in the night sky anymore? Why? He says they're going to fall from heaven. This is a, these are the kind of arguments people use against preterism. We know it's, the preterism is not true because there's still stars in the sky. Oh, great argument. I give up. <laughs> People, the stars here are not talking about those lights in the sky. It's talking about the gods, okay? The stars from heaven will fall. What? The power of heavens are going to be shaken. The stars and the powers of heaven, they're the, they're the spiritual cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil that Paul spoke about in Ephesians 6, 12. We know he's talking about this, this happened in A.D. 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem. That's when he's right after the tribulation. This is what happened. All right, these, these evil ones, these gods, have been destroyed by Yeshua. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Christ arose from the dead, and he judged these gods. What began at Pentecost was completed by Holocaust 40 years later in the, 80s, in the second Exodus period, the 8070 judgment on Jerusalem. Babel is reversed. The nations are gathered and ruled by Yahweh. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's just people of God, those who trust in Yeshua. People, here's what we have to understand today. 
The spiritual battle is over. We're not Ephesians. We're not living prior to AD 70. All right? We're not having, this battle is not going on. The gods and the demons were judged and destroyed in AD 70 after the Great Tribulation. The kingdom of God has come in its fullness today. And all believers, all of us, we're kingdom citizens. And we need to live in light of who we are and the kingdom in which we live in. This battle, you know, so many people are fighting battles that are long gone and already won. And it's a sad thing to be fighting it. I'm not saying we don't have struggles today. Believe me, people, we do, okay? But we're not fighting evil spiritual forces. That battle was over. That battle was won. And we are now enjoying the benefits of the kingdom of God. And the greatest benefit of the kingdom of God is God said, I will dwell with my people. He's with us, people. 24-7, we have God, access to God. That what never happened in the Old Covenant, all right? They had to go, take an animal, and go and hope they didn't get killed going to try to worship God, okay? God dwells with His people. He's here with us now. One of the sad things for me is people longing for something that they already have. We're not waiting for anything, people. We're in, we should be enjoying it all right now. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the opportunity to just look at Your Word, Lord. Father, it seems like from the Scriptures we looked at this morning that there clearly is a divine viewpoint. There is a divine counsel, Lord, that, that ruled with You and disobeyed You, Lord. Father, may we learn from these texts. May we understand Your ruling. May we understand what Elohim really means, Lord. Thank You, Lord, for the truth of Your Scripture. I pray we'd spend time in it, Lord, that we'd take the time to dig, to study, to find out what exactly it is that You are saying to us and how we are to live our lives today. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Okay, when you ask a question, I'm going to count. You only get 40 words, okay? Okay, uh, we got a question, and, and, and great, kept it in. <laughs> Warren from California, thanks for telling us who you are and where you're from, I appreciate that. Uh, who are these gods? Are they devils? No, they're not devils. Uh, by devils, do you mean demons, I guess? Um, the theory is that demons, you know, in Genesis 6, the gods left heaven. They're gods, okay? They're gods. They're just lesser gods. They, they have the characteristic of gods, all right? They came down, they mated with women, they produced an offspring that was half God, half human. When that offspring died, those were Nephilim. When that offspring died, the human part died, the spirit, the God part stayed alive. That's where demons came from. They're spirit beings who roamed the earth. I believe they were all destroyed in AD 70. That battle is over. That battle is done. Okay? Now, I know we look around today and you could swear there's still demons around. Okay? Especially if you look in Washington. But... Uh, okay, but they're not. They've been defeated. They're done with. All right. So that's that's who those gods were. Go back and look at Genesis six, the text there. I think you'll, it'll help you understand that. Jesus cites Psalm eighty-two and John ten thirty-four. Yes, he does. Doesn't Jesus imply that text to human beings, the Jewish leadership that was trying to kill him? That's a good question and. Let me tell you, I've got two messages on that text, okay? You need to go back to our study of John, 
and look that up because it's, it's more in-depth than I can get the answer right here. But Christ is basically proving his deity by that text, all right? And like I said, it's a complicated argument. But yes, he does use Psalm 82 there. And that just, I think, bolsters the case even more. So go back, please. Go to our website. Uh, John, look it up. I think I'm pretty sure I did two messages on that in there. So it's, like I said, it's an in-depth argument, but I think you'll see it if you, if you look at that. So, John Mark from Northern California. Will we be judged as well when we die under the new covenant? Or was the great judgment that referring referring from Adam until A.D. 70. No, believers, believer, John, we will not be judged, okay? So, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no judgment to those who are in Christ Yeshua. There, we can't be, what will we be judged for? Christ was judged for us. He bore our judgment, every bit of it. He didn't take part of it. And then, okay, from now on, you got to do it on your own. Once you get, and there's people that teach that. When you get saved, your sins are forgiven up to that point. From then on, I'm not going to get anywhere then, okay? We're in big trouble. No, Christ bore our sin debt, every bit of it. He gave us His righteousness. All right, Romans 5, 18. By the one man's righteousness, the one man, Christ, the many will be justified. That's the only way any of us will get into heaven. So no, there is no judgment for Christians. Now listen, when I say that, I want you to understand this. There is judgment for Christians here and now on this earth. If you live in sin, God, disobe God deals with His disobedient children. He spanks them. Okay? So if you want to be His child, but you're not living how you should, God will spank you. God will deal with you. So you will deal with that here in this earth. But in eternity... Listen, your position is you are as righteous as Christ. There's no judgment for you. Heaven is not anything looking forward to judgment. The Bema seat that it talks about is a reward platform where rewards are given, not judgment handed out. So please understand that, believers. There, is, there never is, never will be judgment for believers. Uh, last week you were talking about Isaiah 14 and that... Uh, that chapter is used a lot to refer to Satan and what he does uh, in like verse 12 and 13 and 14. And, uh, but it's talking to the king of Babylon. Right. I, said that. Of I Babylon. said that last week. But I find it interesting because that is human activity that it's talking about. And people look at what's going around today and they're like, oh, it's Satan. It's Isaiah 14. Right. But right. that's human activity. That's what you're seeing. And I think that the whole thing, the story there in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, same thing. He's talking to the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. He's talking about the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. But he's using a, the backstory of, of Satan and the fall behind those. And it's a story of pride. And he said, you were in the Garden of Eden. Who was there? It had to be a god, okay, in the Garden of Eden. So, yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, okay, this... This... It says, have you looked at the theory that Christ already reigned for a thousand years? Oh, yeah, he did. It's over. Okay, the thousand years, listen. The thousand years is a figurative number in a book that's highly figurative in Revelation. It's talking about the 40 years from Pentecost to Holocaust was that reign. Okay, 
that is over. Satan was released for a little time at the end of three and a half years of tribulation. It is done. That is all over, okay? Has the millennial reign of Christ already happened? Yes, it has. Are we now in Satan's little time? No. It, no. Satan's little time was at the end of that time, the three and a half year period. It's over. Satan is done. AD 70 was the destruction of the gods. It's over, people. The Bible doesn't predict anything coming past AD 70. There's no prophecy yet to be fulfilled. There's prophecy that's ongoing. We're continuing to take the word of life to the nations, calling them to come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Who's ever thirsty, come. We're, we're, we're calling them to the gospel of Christ. But uh, all prophecy ended. Daniel talks about that. All prophecy was given and ended by AD 70. Have you seen the movie Soul? If not, I think you'd have fun with it. I have not seen the movie Soul. Oh, it's an ant? Are they talking about the Disney movie? I don't know. Soul? Well, if it's a Disney movie, I guarantee you I haven't seen it. Okay. Listen, Disney is one of the chief areas of pedophilia, okay? Disney is as corrupt. If you look into it, you're going to find out. Look at, look at some of the movies they produce. Watch the symbolism. You'll see pedophilia symbols all through these Disney movies for kids. I mean, if you pay attention to what's going on, that's a, that's a very corrupt organization. No, I would not spend a dime. I would not give Disney any of my money. Um. Okay, Dora asked, does God still have a council? You know, some of these gods fell, but I don't know why we think they're all gone. We're going to be involved in the council, okay? But I don't know that, I don't think every god rebelled, so I think God still ha they would still be part of his family. I don't know why they wouldn't be, okay? The gods that rebelled were judged. The rest of them, David? Angels is a, yeah, angels is a, angel are, they are gods, and the terms are used interchangeably, though angels are low-ranking gods, basically, okay? They're messengers, all right? And so there, there's ranks of gods, just like there's, you know, ranks of anything, so... Uh, as yeah. that's kind of a common, common view. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a catchphrase for anything spirit. They're angels. Well, they're actually divine beings. They're, they're a rank. Cherifim, seraphim, there's guardians. One of the things I was thinking about along that lines is the ones who say that Yahweh is the only God, but they also tell you that you know, there's an epic battle between Yahweh and Satan. And so what kind of a being do they claim Satan to be right, you know, yeah. but they say Yahweh is the only God. Well, this you know, angel, but angel is a formerly God. There's a group of people today they don't believe they Satan. They think is just the adversary is a human being. Well, I'm just saying, even right. the ones who think he is a spiritual being, right. they say Yahweh is the only God. I just think that so much of what we've been taught, you know, if we look into the Bible, I remember the first time I heard about this, I had a friend who uh, I knew when I was in the Navy, or after I got out of the Navy, worked for the government, he worked with me, and uh, he sent me a text and says, what do you think of the Divine Council? I'm like, never heard of it, what are you talking about? <laughs> so he sent me uh, Psalm 82. Well, I said, give me a scripture, so he sent me Psalm 82. I read Psalm 82 in the New American Standard. It doesn't say anything in the New American Standard. Right. What's that mean? I didn't, so nothing. And then, you know, Jeff rocked my world. 
when I was always on vacation and Jeff come up and preach this nonsense, okay? And I'm in the car on the way home, trying to drive, listening to this. Oh, I've never heard this in my life, you know? I swear, as soon as I got the car parked in the luggage, I started studying. And I, I was locked in my office for months after that, trying to figure out. And I was like, I'll be darned, all this stuff. You know, I've been studying the Bible, teaching the Bible for all these years, never saw this, never heard of this. What in the world? And I was kind of excited because I thought, what more can we learn? You know, Jeff's like, oh, I don't know. I don't want, <laughs> you know, what else is out there? You know, who knows? I just, I just keep praying that God would just help me to see the truth, whatever it is, wherever it leads, you know, because that's, it doesn't matter. Much anything else doesn't matter. Linda here, being a citizen, a kingdom citizen, can membership be ended with a church for lack of attendance? <laughs> Well, the local church can end your membership, but they can't kick you out of the kingdom of God, okay? <laughs> the sad thing is that most churches today are so far from being churches what they should be that they're more focused on attendance and offerings than anything else. And, and the sad thing is most churches today aren't teaching the Bible anymore. People, they've forsaken that whole idea. So you, you're never getting kicked out of the kingdom of God, okay? So that's, that's the main thing. But I, I think a local church is important. If you can find one, because it's just great to be around other people. You know, I, I long and look forward to coming here on Sunday mornings and just hanging out with you people and talking and sharing, and it's just, it's exciting. And so many people don't have that because they just can't find, you know, once they tell them what they believe, they throw them out. You know, you can't come here. It's funny, people who believe different than you, they can't even come there. Okay, uh, several weeks ago I asked you if you believe in the gap theory. You stated no. Why couldn't there be, if you look at God's divine counsel, see the possibility in a gap view of what the teaching today? Thank you for your faithfulness and sharing. Um, well, Dave, I, I just don't believe in the gap theory. I mean, what am I going to tell you? And I don't know how that ties into today's message. Uh, you're tying it with the divine counsel, but I don't see it, you know. He had to go before the words to understand it. No, I think we're supposed. Yeah, maybe that's good. So yeah, I just uh, no, I don't believe in the gap theory. I think that's, I think it's made up nonsense. To tell you the truth. Is that like the gap in Genesis or the gap in dispensation? No, it's the, yeah, the Genesis one one and one two. Yeah, that's the Genesis. I, I assume you're talking about the Genesis one and, and verse two. You know, the earth was created. Yes. The gods of what? Egypt. Oh yeah, I, I think they some of them were. I think that's where all these gods came from that were over these other things. That God took them and said, okay, you're here, you're here, you're here, and that's where all these gods came from. You know, if you read mythology and all these different titans and stuff, there's reality behind that, you know? They just have taken, again, we talked last week about, remember, every, every civilization was one civilization at one time with one language, and then they were split up when they separated. But So they have these different views, so... But that's why they all come up with the same story. Uh, Dana, San Marcos Satellite Church. I understand that the gods have been judged past tense, but regarding demonic possession and situations, how would you explain those situations? Is it just psychological or psychosomatic, or is there actually some form of demonic activity still possible present in societies and cultures, especially those in societies and cultures that generally are not gospelized? My, my position on this, all the demons were destroyed, okay, in A.D. 70. So people say, well, how do you explain it? I, 
I can't explain your experience. I don't know what happened to you, and I don't know what you ate the night before. And you know, I mean, we all kinds of different you know things like that happen. But uh, but I just no. I, I think the demons were destroyed. You know, they were wiped out. Now, as far as if you're in a situation where you're being taught this, okay, there's demons everywhere. You're going to believe in it, and you're going to look and see them. How many of you know what pseudosciesis is? Pseudosciesis. Here's the thing. And I use this to tell you how powerful the mind is, how important your thinking is, okay? Pseudosciesis is a condition that a woman gets where she thinks she's pregnant. She's not pregnant. She thinks she's pregnant. Her stomach swells, her breasts swell, get very tender. All the signs of pregnancy. She's not pregnant. It's called pseudosciesis. You can look it up. Okay, That shows you the power of the mind and what the mind can do. And if someone believes something, they can act it out. They can see it. I saw. I have some weird experiences, you know, when I was a teenager through LSD. But you know, I don't. Th- <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when you do that kind of stuff. You see, you see, you see weird things happen. Okay. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't think it was demonic. But I'm laying on my bed and I have one of those overhead light. And the overhead light was opening up like a shovel and coming down, trying to pick me up. And I'm pushing into the bed, and I'm like, I never, I never did that stuff again, okay? I did it one time, and I was like, not enjoy that at all. It wasn't a fun trip, okay? <laughs> stupid, the stupid things kids do. Um, did, uh, do you think the Elohim appointed human rulers of the nations that they were over? Yes, I, I think that... Here's how, here's how I see it. you got divine leadership, divine rulers. They rule over the nations. Okay, So the government of the nations are being ruled by the government in, in heaven, the spiritual beings. And that's why things are going on. They're, you know, they're, a lot of people want to say, well, there's no, it's nothing spiritual, it's just evil men on earth. Those evil men, I believe, were being controlled by these divine beings. Because uh, when Jesus told Pilate that all, of, all authority comes from above, like any authority that you right. have, there's some... Hierarchy. Exactly. There's Pilate, whoever, right. the emperor, right. whatever God rules over right. him, and then God. Yes. So. All these authorities. And I, and I think all the gods that you read about in all these other nations, these gods they had, they were they were part of this pantheon, okay? Uh, this is still Dana. Dana says, for those listening who may not have a lot of fellowship, try inviting a few friends over for church and simulcast church services from Berean. And yeah, that's a great idea. And I know many people have done that. The, the Irwins in Arkansas, they, they get together with a bunch of people and they watch us on TV and then they sit around and talk about it and, you know, they have fellowship. It's, you know, it's like a church, you know, basically is. That's what it's about, having fellowship with others. So yeah, I think if you're really in a state where you have nothing, reach out to somebody, you know, let people know uh, what you believe and you never know what will happen, you know. Hand them a book. Give them one of Glenn's books and say, here, check this out and let me know. If you never hear from them again, you know they didn't like it, okay? We're also seeing that there's several people that live in Chesapeake. Okay, listen. We don't we don't have the technology to block locals. <laughs> but I wish I did because yeah, if you're local, please come in here, join the fellowship. We'd like to see you. I mean I, I love knowing you people are out there. 
but I'm looking at real people here and smiling. And I can talk to them afterwards, and he we can go out to eat together. Moments. And so, yeah, yeah please uh, join the fellowship. Okay, uh, I don't know who this is from. Says I don't understand how you can say that we are no longer fighting against principalities and spirit wickedness in high places. How can you say we no longer have a spiritual adversary? It's not e- not hard. I just said it. Okay, it's just because the. This battle ended in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, after the Great Tribulation, God destroyed the gods. The texts say that, okay? Now, again, if, if this is new to you, then I guess you don't understand it. And I would encourage you to go to our website and just type in spiritual warfare. How many messages do we have on... Sp- yeah, there's, there's probably ten messages in there on this spiritual... War in, because if it's new to you, I can understand you're, not, you're being confused on it, but... You know, you ought to understand the spiritual battle, what the spiritual battle was about. So please, yeah, please do that, okay? But so obviously this, uh, there was a lot of questions here. If AD 70 was the second coming, if, why do such atrocities occur such as Palestine? Why are people still struggling and suffering? Why are children being used in satanic rituals? I'm trying to take in this new information. Thank you. Believe me. You didn't, you didn't put a name here, but I totally understand, okay? I did a message not that long ago, why are men so evil, okay? So again, go to our website, type in evil. It, here's the reason that we think we need, anytime someone does something bad, there must be a demon behind it, okay? God says in Genesis 8 that the imagination of men's heart is evil continually from their youth, continually. Men are evil. Now, that includes women. Sorry, women, but... <laughs> That's human, let me just say, not just men. Men are maybe more evil, but men and women are evil, okay? In James chapter 1, it says, Every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It doesn't say that Satan's pushing you to do this or that, okay? Men are evil. They just, I mean, God created man and he put him in a perfect environment with one commandment. Do anything you want. And he does, he breaks the one commandment. He calls Israel, gives them, you know, all these, he gives them 613 commandments. <laughs> they didn't keep any of them, okay? And so God had to judge and deal with them. Men are evil, and they'll always turn away from God, left to themselves, okay? You know, you know, even as Christians, we still battle being evil, okay? We're selfish, we're self-centered. That's why if God didn't do it for us, guess what? It ain't going to get done, all right? It's the only way to get done. But listen, I understand your struggle. Because I struggle with that, like I said, I, I look at our politicians, I wonder, really, is Satan not alive anymore? It's just, but I'm telling you, theologically, this is what the Bible teaches. Practically, yeah, sometimes it's, it's hard to understand. John from South Carolina, what did you mean when you said Holocaust? Okay, good question, thank you. Uh, see, that's what the question answers for, okay? That's the purpose of it, yes, all right? From Pentecost to A.D. 70, at A.D. 70 was a Holocaust for Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, the great tri- If you go to, go to our website, go to Matthew 24, look at this message, the Great Tribulation. I use a lot of history there from Josephus to show what happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a horrible place. They were being destroyed by the Romans. The Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. It was a three-and-a-half-year siege. They destroyed Jerusalem. There was fighting going on within the city. Women were eating their own children. I mean, they were killing each other. It was a horrible bloodbath, okay? Jerusalem was destroyed. It was burned to the ground. The Jews that were alive were taken off into slavery. 
that was the Holocaust for Jerusalem. So that I don't I'm not talking about the later Holocaust. I'm talking about that for Jerusalem. So from Pe- it rhymes Pentecost to Holocaust. Okay, so that's that's the idea there. But I was referring to the AD 70 judgment that happened in Jerusalem. The Great Tribulation was the Holocaust. Thank you. I appreciate that question because that, like I said, you nailed it. Thank you, John. Yeah, a question that really. I'm a new listener, Long Island. Thank you. We've got a lot of new listeners. Our our sus- subscribers have jumped incredibly in the last couple of months on YouTube. Our subscribers to YouTube. Well, Rumble's growing. Yeah, Rumble's growing too, also. But that it's just. I'm a new listener from Long Island, New York. Is there is there no more gods of this world that blind us from seeing the gods? No, those those gods were done. Okay, they they were finished. And that's why they were blinding men. And that's why, you know, <clears throat> Satan was bound in Revelation 20 so he might not deceive the nations. They can't be deceived. The gospel's going to the nations. They're believing in Christ. They're trusting Christ. All right. So that has nothing. No, th- those gods are dead. They're gone. They're toast. And now we, you know, that we're not battling that anymore. The sense of all of it that Yeshua was the atonement for sin and spiritual death and defeated Satan if we have to deal with Satan and demons today, what was the point of Christ's sacrifice if we have to battle and fight against demons and Satan? The present evil is from man today. Well, absolutely, Gary, uh, from PA. That's, that's exactly true. And here's the thing. The purpose of the spiritual battle was to stop the plan of redemption. Okay? So in Genesis 3.15, when God said the seed of the woman is going to produce a redeemer, okay, that's when the demons, that's when the gods came down and said, we'll mix up the race and they, he can't come. All right. Then it was, it was Babel and it was just trying to stop the Redeemer from coming. Once the Redeemer came, they have no, they can't do anything. They're done, basically. And that's why Paul said, if the gods of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, they thought, oh, we're, we're going to win here. No, you're killing yourself. <laughs> you're going in the wrong direction. All right. And so, yes, it's, it's a beautiful plan when you understand the whole thing. And, it's, of course, it's God's plan, so it's going to be beautiful. Watchman Nee's book, The Latent Power of the Soul, explained a lot about the power of the soul of men. Yeah, we, you just have to understand how evil men are. That's all. You just got to realize. And, you know, if you're honest with yourself, okay, you just got to know. And I'm sure some of us are more evil than others. Um, I'm mad at myself all the time. Why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? You know, my wife says, why, you know, it's hard living with you. I'm like, how do you like, how do you think I feel? If it's hard living with me, I can't leave the room. I'm stuck with me. Okay. I follow me wherever I go. (laughs) At least she can leave. Okay. Uh, Someone who's, I don't know who this is from. One says, one can think himself into big trouble. Yeah, you can. The Bible says in Proverbs, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Okay, our mind is very important. All right, again, that pseudosiasis thing shows you when you're thinking wrong, you're going to act wrong. You're, you know, if you think there's demons out there, you're going to be afraid to death. Like, you know, if the government comes up with some crazy idea and says there's a weird virus out there that's going to kill you all, everybody gets scared and, you know, tries to do whatever. If your thinking's wrong, you're going to act wrong. Okay? Tad from China Fornia. <laughs> That's in there. China Fornia. If evil in the heavenly realm has ended, isn't the battle against the 
Isn't the battle against flesh and blood? Yes. Okay, that's a good question, Tad. Because when, when Ephesians 6 was written, they were in the transition period. They were still battling the demons. We're not in that transition. That 40-year transition ended in 8070. So we're not in a spiritual battle today. Yes, we do battle with flesh and blood. Okay? That wasn't their battle. We are still... Again, we fight all kinds of things, people. If you're trying to live a decent life, you're going to be fighting on every end. You're going to, people don't like Christians because we blow the standard for them. We don't go with their woke nonsense. We stand against it so that you're going to constantly be attacked. If you want to be healthy, it's a constant battle because they want to poison us. All the food on the shelves is poison. Okay, so The water you drink, the air we breathe, everything. It's just a constant battle. But we're not fighting demons. Kim from Texas. Assuming angels can still sin and fairly recent giant skeletons have been found, could there have been another angel-human contact resulting in giants and more? You know, I, I believe, personally, Kim, there was a second incursion of, you know, because the flood wiped out, I believe, the Nephilim. But then it, we have Nephilim after the flood. I think it's because of the second incursion. There's other views on that. So that's where giants came from, from the Nephilim. Yes, they're discovering so-called skeletons of giants. Here's the thing, Kim. My problem is I don't believe anything the government or anyone else tells me, especially if it's on TV. If you can research it, if you can see it, you know, then because they, they, I say this over and over, they lie to us about everything. Everything they lie. Our government would not lie to us. Really? Believe me, everything, everything you hear from them pretty much is a lie. When the gods that are being worshipped in other religions, for example, Allah, Buddha, etc., created as lesser gods by Yeshua or something else. Well, these gods were created by Yeshua, but these gods are done now. Okay, There is no god that they're worshipping. Those gods are done, they're finished. And again, you know, even in people in satanic worship, if you talk to some of these people that you know, worship Satan, they don't believe there's a being of Satan. It's just a lifestyle. It's a thing they do. Okay? They're not thinking they're really worshiping somebody. All right? Yeah. Waited and prayed for 54 years to find you in your church. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate you prolonging that prayer life and waiting. And, and welcome. It's, it's good to have you with us. I just, I get these kind of things like that from people. And it's just, you know, it's a blessing. I mean, we're, please pray for us. Our, our desire is simply to teach the Bible. And again, like I said, I don't care where it leads. That's not important. If it's God's truth, it matters, and we've got to follow it. So pray for us. I think you can sum it up this, Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, that men may know that the, ri- the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there's no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Yeah, that's a bad translation because the word calamity there is the Hebrew word ra, and ra means evil. People have a hard time saying, God created evil. Isaiah 45, 7 says he does. You, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. If, if this is, you know, when God says, I am God and there is no other, that, he's not saying there is no other gods. He's saying, I'm chief above all. And you can see this all through Scripture, okay? Like Babylon. Like, no, there's no other like Babylon. There's no other cities? Yes. But they, he's saying, I'm the greatest. I'm the best. So when God says there's none, there's no I'm God and there's none else, He's not denying the existence of other gods. That'd be a contradiction in Scripture. All right? Yeah, I'm Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay, there is no other. There is no other God like Him. He's, he's the God of gods, the Lord of lords. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just try to understand the concept. Why are so many people blinded to the gospel until now, if we are now in the kingdom of God? Who's blinding the lost? God. Okay, God is. Because listen, the Bible, you know, people don't like this. God teaches that he calls people to himself. If God doesn't call you, you don't come. Okay, men, all men, every man are born blind. Okay, because they're dead in sin. And if you're born dead in sin, dead men can't believe. They can't do anything. God says until he reaches into your life and calls you to himself, people don't come. That's why people reject the gospel. Okay? This whole idea of free will is total nonsense. Okay? Men don't have a free will. All right? You don't just say, I'm dead, but I think I'll choose life today. When God called Lazarus out of the tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus says, I can't. I'm dead. I can't even hear you. What? Well, yeah, I, I, you know, did he say, oh, well, okay, I decide, to, I decide to be alive. No, the Word of God gave him life, called him out of that tomb. That's what has to happen. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him because they're spiritually discerned. Natural man can't just say, oh, I think I'll be, I think I'll be a Christian. God, it's all about God. The gospel is about God, and God receives all the glory because it's all about Him. He calls, He preserves, He delivers. It's, it's all about God. And that's the whole point of the gospel, to give glory to God. Amen. Yeah, Gary says, God is in... Okay, how did we get this time? All right. Great questions, people. Thank you so much. I appreciate most of you. Some of those were a little long, but most of you following the 40-word rule. And just ask, and I guess I was right. There's a lot of new people out there with a lot of questions. So thank you. Um, yes, please, please go to the website. The website has a great search engine. You can pick anything you want, a phrase or a word, and search it. It'll pull up. We have almost 800 messages on there. It'll pull up among all those who, you know, other people who spoke, Mike Sullivan, Bob Crookshank searches all the messages on there and it'll give you an idea. And a, you know, like go in and you want the millennium. People are really confused about the millennium. Go in there and type in millennium. Pull up Bob Crookshank's message. Or go to the studies, or go to the studies page on eschatology. Be yeah. Yeah, you can search on under eschatology. You can go through dates. You know when it was. You can go through the books. You can go. It, it's please use the website because it's it's tons of information there. Uh, just avail yourself to it, okay? And if you search through the search engine and you can't find it, let me know. I'll do the search engine and I'll find it, okay? It's just a matter of knowing what to put in. All right. Um, yeah. We're going to close in prayer. We'll save the closing song for next week. <laughs> Somehow it got really late here. Again, thank you for watching us. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, go in the chat room there. Talk to other people that are in there and just you know make some friendships. Thanks for being here, folks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to just come together to worship you, Lord. I thank you for our, our musical team here, Lord. It's just amazing. I just love to hear the music and to worship you, Father, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity that we have that here. We can come together and be with one another. Thank you for like-minded people. Lord, I pray for those watching us that don't have a church home. I pray that they'd be able to find somebody with like-minded they can get together with and just share, be with other real people to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace to us. I pray that the more we study your word, the more we learn who you are, and we bow before you in worship. Thank you, Father, for all you've given us. Amen. Thanks for being with us, folks. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.